Take your Bibles and turn with me to that first chapter of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, as we look at that same passage that we looked at last week, a little different perspective and a little different angle, if you will, but still thinking about worship, thinking about what it means to come before the Lord in worship. You know, one of the, one of the great glories of even the prophets, as you read these, the prophets will, the prophets hit pretty hard. I mean, they really do. They, they pull no punches. They, they say, this is what's wrong, and, and you need to make it right. They don't, they don't beat around the bush about it, typically. But the great thing about the prophets is that we realize that behind every one of those warnings, behind every one of those judgments, behind every one of those challenges... It is the mercy and the grace of God. That those challenges, those, those judgments are always given that the person who is in Christ will come to a realization of what the prophet is talking about and will come seeking the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will come seeking forgiveness and seeking to have themselves cleansed because of the work that Christ has indeed done. And that's the glory of seeing these prophecies. Some read the prophecies and say, oh, what a negative outlook. What a negative view. Who can attain it? Well, the truth of the matter is they do hit some negative things. And the truth of the matter is the question, who can attain it, ought to be the, the right question we ask. But the answer to that is the Lord Jesus Christ can and has and will attain it in our lives as those who are in Christ. So that when we look at this, when we think about this, I want you to think about the fact that Malachi, especially as we get to the end of this book, is pointing forward to the coming of Christ. He's talking about a day when things will be restored in a proper way. But in the meantime, he's saying you need to consider where you are. In that first passage, that first sermon out of Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, we talked about Malachi being the messenger of the Lord, but we talked about him, ta- him speaking of this message he brings as a burden, that it's heavy, that, that is an oracle of the Lord, a burden of the Lord. Basically what Malachi is saying, listen, I know this is going to be tough, and it's tough on me to bring this word. It's tough on me to say these things. I come because I know many times people don't hear what God has to say, and they turn their back on it, but I also come because I realize that as I bring it, I have to think about myself. I have to, I have to look at my own situation. And so there's a burden that is born there in every circumstance by a preacher when he brings the word of the Lord, especially the prophets. When they come and they say, you know, it's, it's not a flippant thing. It's not a casual thing. It's not something that is just to be looked at lightly. So he talked about the burden. Then last week we talked about, well, we talked first two weeks ago about how God said, I've loved you. And they said, how have we loved you? They questioned that. They could not see that it was because of God's grace upon them that they were who they were. They had the inheritance that they had because God's love was on them. They looked at circumstances and said, well, God, if you really loved us, there'd be no problems around us. There'd be no bad economy. There'd be no no situations that we find ourselves uncomfortable in. Why, God, if you loved us, everything would be perfect. And, and that we know that's not true, but we look at God many times in the same way. Lord, if you really loved me, I wouldn't have any financial difficulties. If you really loved me, Lord, I wouldn't have cancer. If you really loved me, I wouldn't have 
uh, uh, different diseases and sicknesses. Lord, if you really love me, everything would be perfect. God says, I've loved you because you're in Christ. I've loved you because by my grace, I have given you my presence and my life. I have loved you by giving you that which you could not get for yourself. Yes, I've loved you. Circumstances don't prove nor dismiss my love toward you. Then last week, we talked about the second charge. You said, you know, a a son honors his father. And and yet you don't show me honor. And he talked about that a little bit. And and we talked about what it means to honor God. And, and, you know, I kind of use the illustration of going to the White House at a meeting and and being properly attired and properly dressed. And I wasn't saying you got to wear a suit and tie. You got to wear a a formal dress to come and worship God. You you ought to come in in something that shows your attitude of of cleanliness and modesty and and a desire to be before him. But you don't have have to dress up come into his presence but it's the attitude behind what's taking place i'm thankful that we feel free we come we've got just about every every level of dress here from from coat and tie to 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 whatever jeans and and a and a t-shirt and but but there there's the attitude of how you come before the lord that you come with a heart that is submitted to him and a heart that is desiring to see him, showing him his honor. Well, today I, I want to look at three other things that, that Malachi talks about beyond just the fact that he is a father, where is his honor? And, and I want to talk about three other elements, if you will, of careless worship. And think about the dangers of careless worship as opposed to what true worship is. And I want you to hear the word of the Lord again from Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord as we read it, as I read it. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts? O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And realize that in this context, my name and your name carries with it the totality of God's attributes and character and, and, and perfections. The, the name is representative of all that he is. How have we despised your name? Well, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And in, that you in that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is, that not e- is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer that to your governor? Would he be pleased with you, or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut up the gates, that that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered in my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it. 
in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome is it? And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Malachi here, in in speaking the word of the Lord, comes to them and confronts them in the area of their worship. Now, they're doing all the right things. They're bringing sacrifices and they're offering on the altar. Now, we recognize we don't have an altar. The altar was the cross. Our sacrifice, the pure and perfect and, and eternal sacrifice, was offered on that cross, Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. And there's, but there's application here that we need to see. They were coming to the, to the place of worship. They were bringing their sacrifice. They were doing everything, if you will, in many ways according to the tradition According to the the ritual, they were carrying it out, and yet God was saying, I'm not pleased with that. Some might have said, well, what what do you want? You want our best? And God would say, yes. Well, what do you want? You want our full heart and our full attention? And God would say, yes, that's exactly what I'm expecting. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And yet you are coming and profaning my table. You're coming and profaning my altar. You're coming and profaning worship because of your attitudes and because of your actions toward me. I had Brother Ricky read that passage out of 1 Chronicles chapter 29 this morning in our hearing of the word because that was David's prayer. After David had brought together all of the the matters and all of the supplies that were needed for building the temple of God, of which God had said, you can't do it because you're a man of war, you're a man who shed blood, but your son can do it, but you can gather it all together. David gathered the people around and gathered them in that place before the temple was ever built, and he prayed, and he said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. You own it all. You rule over it all. You are the sovereign king. I love that song the choir sang about his sovereignty, about his, his, his not for a moment forsaking us because he is a clear and a mighty and a strong God who is worthy to be worshipped. But not just worthy to be worshipped, but worthy to be worshipped rightly. So God, speaking through Malachi, says, I want you to see there, there are really three things that beyond your defaming my name, not giving me honor, there are really three things I want you to see that are problematic in your worship. The first thing is this. Starting verse 8, he shows that they brought to God what they couldn't use. They brought to God as an offering and as a sacrifice what was really of no value to them. It really didn't cost them anything. He says in verse 8, he says, you present the blind, that is the blind animal for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, 
is it not evil? Evidently, these people in, in Malachi's day were coming and they were bringing a lamb to be sacrificed or they were bringing the proper animal for the proper sacrifice. But they would look among their flock and they would say, hey, that one's blind over there. He's going to be dead before long anyway because he's going to fall off a cliff. So we'll take that and offer that as our sacrifice to God. Or, or here's one over here whose leg has been broken and he can barely get around. He's, gonna, he's obviously going to get very ill and sick and he's going to get diseased and we can't eat him, we can't use him. So, so let's take that and while he's still alive, let's offer it as a sacrifice to God. It's of no value to us. It's of no sacrifice to us. We'll call it a sacrifice, but it's really just that which we don't need, that which we don't use, that which we can't sell for a better profit, so we'll just take advantage of it. It doesn't cost them anything. They really were giving to God that which was left over, that which they could easily discard and not fail in any way. They fail to see here that what God's command is to us is that we come with the first fruits. And by first fruits, that carries with the idea of that which is the first and that which is the best. We come to give God not what's left over, not what we just kind of scrabble up and, and pull up when we can't find anything better. We, do, we just kind of bring Him what we, what we have that's left over and say, Lord, you, you got to do with this. And it may be our money. It may be our time. It may be the talents that God has given us. I'm... I'm so grateful. You know, I prayed for a violin, and we got two. Prayed for a flute, and we got one this morning. Somebody who had the talent who was just sitting there, and not, but they said, hey, we'll bring this and give it to God. And it enhanced our worship that they shared their gift with us this morning in what God has given to them. What a, what a glorious thing. It, it's not a, it, Malachi says, bring your best. Bring what God has given to you and use it for his glory. It has to do with whatever gifts we bring. You know, I've often counseled young couples in premarital counseling because we sit down and work through budget and talk through, you know, what, what they're going to do with what God gives them in their income. And, and, and they'll say, they'll come in with their budget and they always start out with their rent and their car payment and their student loans. And they come right on down the line. And then they get to the final part and they usually have that last line, something to give to God. And, and that's between them and the Lord, but they budget in something there. And I always ask, usually ask them the question, why didn't you put that at the top? And in years gone by, I've had people uh, say, well, you know, that's, we, we may not have enough if we put it at the top. We may not have enough to make this payment at the bottom. So we have to think this thing through, you know, and be, but why do you put it at the bottom? Why do you make the last fruits when it ought to be the first fruits? You know, one thing I do every two weeks when I sit down to pay the bills uh, after getting paid on Thursday, the first check I write is to my gift to the Lord. Now, aren't I spiritual? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I used to not do that. I used to write the power bill and the car payment and the house payment, and when I'd get down to the end, I'd have this amount that I knew I should give to the Lord, and I would notice that if I take that out, mm, it's just going to leave a little bit. And I'd wrestle with, well, maybe I should I'm confessing my own sin here. Maybe I, maybe I don't have to give all of that because I need to give a little bit for reserves. I still got two weeks to go, you know. And, and when, when I was writing the check to the church, to, to God, to my offering, it, it always seemed to be a challenge that got to the end that if I write all of that, I may not have enough to get to the next paycheck. So I started many years ago 
making it the first check I write. And I get down to the bottom, and maybe the last thing I've got to pay is my power bill, and it fluctuates and goes up and down, as you know. And I, I get to that power bill, and, and it's, it's $250, and I've got $400 left. And I say, oh, man, that's just going to leave $150 left in there in order to live over the next two weeks. Maybe I just won't send the power company half of that. I've never done that. I write the check because I know it's, it's, it's due. I need to pay it. And, but by putting an offering at, as the first fruits, by making the first thing I think about, the first thing I do, at least in my mind and in my pen as I'm writing it, I'm saying, Lord, thank you for what you've given me, and, and this is yours as a response uh, and as an expression of love for what you've done in my life. But they were just giving what was left over. Malachi gives them a challenge here. I love, Malachi is a very sarcastic prophet. I don't know if you picked it up or not. And I've, I've been known to have a little sarcasm in my, in my time also. But I want you to hear what, look what he says in verse 8. When you present the blind for sacrifice, it's not evil. When you present the lame and the sick, it's not evil. Why don't you just go and offer that to your governor? In other words, what he's saying is, why don't you try to pay your taxes with that? You got a blind lamb, take it to the governor. Now, a lot of scholars believe that because of the situation, the time frame here, that that governor might very well have been Nehemiah, who had been appointed to governor this area. There's no sound evidence for that, but there's, there's implication that it might have been. And so, so he says, why don't you just offer that to your governor? governor? Would he be pleased with you, or would he receive you kindly? Let's put it in our terms. Why don't you just take what's left over, take what you don't need, and, and just go pay your tax bill with it. Go to the IRS and say, you know, this is not really everything I owe and everything is figured up, but it's, it's all I've got and it's a measly amount, but I'm sure you'll be honored and pleased with this. They would say, I don't care where you get it. Go get it. You owe what you owe, and I expect you to give it. Now, now, now understand... Nehemiah's point here is very clear that what we give to God in our worship, again, not just money, time, talent, honor, ought to be the very first thing we do. It ought to be what flows out of a heart. It ought not just be giving God what we can't use. We live in a day when schedules are packed. I know that. I'm so thankful my kids are grown and they're not in their children and middle school ages today. I, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. It drives me crazy. I just have to say I can't preach most weeks because I've you know, got to be out there at, at this activity and that activity and doing this and doing that. I, I'd go crazy. And a lot of times we see that we have to do these things, and if there's something left over, then we'll come and give it to the Lord. We, we'll, we'll, we'll go and do everything the world demands of us, and if there's time left over, we'll give it to the Lord. I won't even get into Sunday sports. I'll leave that to go. They brought what they couldn't use. Second thing Malachi talks about is they were involved in just worthless religious activity. In verse 10, he says, Oh, that there was one among you, talking to the priests now, and understand the priest in that day carry with it an, uh, uh, an application, not just to pastors, because we're not priests. 
We're all priests before the Lord. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. That all believers make up the priesthood. So, so there's an application here to, to all of us, not just to those who lead, although there is a specific application to those who lead. I wish there were one among you who would just shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. They were casual. They were apathetic. They were doing it simply because it was something they were supposed to do. They came and went through the ritual. They came and went through all the rites that were supposed to be done. But there was no real heartfelt worship involved. That's why when we come into this place on Sunday morning, we put our focus from the time of a scriptural call to worship until the benediction, our focus is on Him. We want to direct your attention not to one another, not to to a meet and greet, but we want to focus your attention on Christ through the songs we sing, through the scriptures that are read, through the messages that are brought. We want to see you come in here and have some kind of heartfelt experience. Now, we can't make that happen. It really is up to you as the worshiper whether you come in and say, I've come to worship the living God, or whether you say, I've just come because this is where I'm supposed to be this morning. But God says, I wish somebody would just shut the gate. The worship is so shallow in Malachi's day, so uh, apathetic, that I wish somebody would just close the doors, lock the doors, so nobody could get in, because it really is becoming tiresome to me. It's not something that honors me, and it's not something I will accept. Uh, Many of you know one of my heroes, besides Spurgeon, is Jesse Mercer, who was a pastor theologian back in the early 1800s in Georgia and out of his biography this is out of a paper I wrote several years ago on on Mercer but it's it's found in his biography that was written and I I, I love this statement it's a little lengthy but listen to what he says says Mr. Mercer had for a fortnight two weeks been on a preaching tour and had spent most of the time in a revival on his return he attended to the meeting of his church where he pastored Watley's Mill. Aware that the church was in a languid state, his sermon was on the deceitfulness of the heart crying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. He became deeply affected at the end of his discourse and addressed his congregation as follows. Now this is what Mercer said. Dear brethren and friends, I have been for the great part of the last two weeks addressing a people that I believe are truly awakened to the sense of their lost, helpless, and ruined state, and they're crying out in their agony, what shall we do to be saved? Among them, my tongue seemed to be loosed, and I could point them with great freedom to the way of salvation through a crucified Savior. On my way hither, on my way back, The way they talk, you sometimes have to translate. On my way hither, I felt the deepest concern in contrasting your lifeless condition with theirs. I even bedewed, got it wet, I bedewed the pommel of my saddle with tears. And here, lifting up his hands, he exclaimed to his congregation, Oh, my dear congregation, I fear that you are too good to be saved. 
and he burst into an irrepressible flood of tears, descending from the pulpit, and recovering himself a little, he poured forth the most solemn and impassioned exhortation, which many came forward and asked for prayer in their behalf, from, which, from, from that sermon and that occasion, one of the most interesting revivals which has ever blessed that church commenced. Forty-nine people were saved that day, and over the period of the next year, over 1,050 in that community came to know the Lord. I fear you're too good to be saved, Mercer said. You think, I'm okay. I'm a pretty good person. And, and Malachi is saying here, when you come into worship, you don't just come with a, with a casual, apathetic idea of, hey, I'm, I'm here because this is what I'm supposed to do. You come with a desire to see the living God and know Him. You come with a desire to focus upon Him and, and, and glorify His name through your life and through your worship. Notice that's what he makes clear in verse 11. He says, from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be offered in my name. And a grain offering that is pure, not second hand, not second best, but is pure. For not my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He says our purpose for gathering is not just to go through a ritual, not just to endure a sermon, not just to sing a few songs and, and hopefully... It'd be something we like, one or two at least. So we come in with one focus and one focus only, and that is worshiping and glorifying and exalting the Lord. It's just that simple. But we sometimes get so caught up in, in stuff, in, in, in letting other things distract our attention. I, I've been praying this weekend for a dear friend who's, who's got a real problem in his church. There's a real criticism going around, and, and, and the criticism is he's too loud. He's too loud. Turn the microphone down, I guess, if he's too loud. But what a petty thing. And, and one dear lady told him, said, I, I can't worship because you're just too loud. Now, you can't worship because your focus is on the wrong thing, I would say to that dear lady. Focus in on Christ, in on God, and in on bringing your best and bringing what God has given you and giving that back. I love how David said in, in that passage in 1 Chronicles, he said, he said, Lord, what we have and bring to you, we bring to you because you gave it to us to bring to you. We don't bring anything of our own. We only bring out of your blessings and out of your provision. So they brought what they didn't need. They, they kind of... Uh, brought this uh, stuff they couldn't use. Then they involved in, in worthless and uh, religious ritual, just doing it because they felt like that's what they were supposed to do. And finally, thirdly, final act of careless worship was seeing that they just felt it was too much trouble. I love, again, his sarcasm comes out a little bit here, I think, in, in verse 13. He says in verse 13, you also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what was taken by robbery or deceit and what is lame and sick, and you bring the offering. Should I receive that out of your hand, 
And the implication is no. The anticipated answer is no. It's rhetorical, and, and, and he understands no, but, but I love how he says, you also say, my, how tiresome it is. And then the addition, and you disdainfully sniff at it. You ever sniffed at anything? Not to smell it, but just to kind of show your displeasure with it. Hmm. But no, that's what they were doing. They, they were coming to the presence of God, and they were saying, man, this is, this is tiresome. This is, this is burdensome. Man, it, it requires too much to worship like Malachi, like, like you're saying we ought to be worshiping God, giving our all, putting everything into it, coming in and at least for this hour or so as we gather together, giving our total attention, our total focus, our total praise, our total honor, our total glory to Lord, the Lord God, blessing Him, praising Him, honoring Him, and not worrying about all this other stuff. But we come in and we go, too much trouble. Too tiresome. Stayed up till midnight watching a football game last night. Just, I'm just too tired to do this. I, I you know, I, I was out with with my kids playing all evening, and 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 we didn't get into late, and 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 we have to get here so early, you know. And it's just, it's just a real burden. It's just really tiring. Worship requires that much be put into it. Indeed, our whole self. There's a sense which worship has to be prepared for. You don't just get up on Sunday morning and say, okay, it's Sunday, I'm going to go worship. There needs to be preparation through prayer and other things. There, there needs to be a time on even Saturday night, and I, I kind of count Saturday at sundown, I'm, I'm kind of Jewish in this respect. Not really Jewish, but in this respect it would work. About sundown on Saturday, we ought to start thinking about what we're going to be doing after we sleep. And on Saturday night, that means worship. Now, I've got to be honest with you, I, I'm preaching to the preacher here. But, you know, the last thing I do on Saturday night is I try to be in the Word and in prayer even after Rudd has gone to bed, I stay up, I look over my sermon notes, I just pray over those notes, I pray over the text, I read the text, and then I flip over and read something that's totally unrelated, just to prepare my heart. When I get here on Sunday morning, I greet some of you, and you go to your Sunday school classes, and I go to my study. And, and I don't make appointments during the Sunday school hour typically. I go back there, close my door, and I, I pray over the text I'm going to preach on, and I seek the Lord and say, Lord, Please use this text in my life and use this text in the lives of my people. We ought to constantly be evaluating our own worship because the opposite of careless worship is true worship. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. From the innermost being and according to his word. Both of those are necessary for worshiping the true and living God who is spirit. There, there is that, there, the opposite of careless worship is true worship. In his word, in the spirit, the Holy Spirit, and in your spirit, that which is deepest within you. 
Sometimes we think the opposite of true worship, if the opposite of careless worship is true worship, we think that, well, the opposite of true worship must be atheism or agnosticism. It's not. The opposite of true worship is careless worship. Oh, the atheist doesn't worship God? Of course not. The agnostic doesn't worship God? Of course not. But the one who is careless in their worship doesn't worship God truly either. True worship does two things, I think. We'll close with this. True worship expresses from your innermost being the feeling, or as Jonathan Edwards called it, the affection, the feeling of God's value and God's greatness. Come in and you sing a hymn like, Holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Holy, holy, holy. When you sing those three words, what are you thinking about? If you're thinking about anything else, you're not worshiping. If those words are not forcing your attention and forcing your mind to think about the God who is holy above all things, the God who is sovereign over all things, then you're not worshiping. You're singing holy, holy, holy. I'm not sure I'm getting that right. I'm not. This person sings better than I do. I need to be quieter. Or they sing worse than I do. I need to be louder. Your, Your focus is not on who you're supposed to be singing about. There's a feeling or affection of God's value and God's greatness. True worship comes from a heart where God is treasure above all human property and all possessions and all recreations and all things. True worship comes out of a heart that values Him, that treasures Him. And treasures his word. That's what David said in the Psalms. He said, your word have I treasured. We sometimes quote the old King James, have I hidden in my heart. It is hidden there, but it's treasured there. It's valued there. And so when you come into worship, when you walk through those doors, your, your thoughts ought to immediately change. But if you're not prepared, it, it won't. It expresses a feeling of God's value and God's greatness. Secondly, True worship seeks to build in, to encourage, or to sustain within the congregation that same spiritual sense of God's immense worth and beauty. It's first a personal thing, and it ought to be being prepared personally and individually in your home, in your car, in your your prayer closet, wherever. But when we come together, we bring that heart that expresses value uh, and, and greatness to God. We bring that together and we seek to let it be like a virus that spreads among us like a wildfire. That builds into the congregation that spiritual sense of God's immensity, of God's worth, and of God's beauty. True worship aims to inspire that within the congregation we we have instruments and we have a choir and 
We have leaders of worship who, who their whole goal is, is not to entertain. Their goal is not to say, oh, wow, you did a great job today. But it's to point us toward God. Listen, in those interludes today in those two great hymns, Holy, 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 and, and Be Thou My Vision, you know, the violin was not for you to say, oh, isn't she playing beautifully? Or the flute, isn't that absolutely gorgeous? Is to hear a different tone and a different expression of the holiness and the greatness of God. It's to perk up our ears to spiritual truth. It's to attract our attention not to the instrument, not to the song, not to the, not to the goodness or the badness or the mediocrity or, or anything like that. And it wasn't mediocre great but it's to show us not their greatness but the greatness of our God the might of our God the power of our God and it's to show us as Mercer sought to show his congregation that if our focus is on ourselves we'll never really worship if our focus is on ourselves, if it's turned inwardly, and if you're in my class today, we're going to talk about that a little bit in relation to the whole concept of salvation and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. It's, it's, it's amazing. If, if our focus is turned in on ourselves, we are being Eve all over again. See, the sin of Eve is not so much what she did, but was what her heart was. Oh, she took the fruit and she ate the fruit. But she did it because she desired the fruit more than she desired fellowship with God. And so often, we desire a good feeling. We desire to learn something more than we desire Him. True worship. Hear this. If you had not heard anything else, hear this. Because this is important for us. True worship is desiring our great and powerful and loving and holy Trinitarian God and fellowship with Him more than it is anything else on the face of this earth. More than it is any other relationship. More than it is any other Joy or pleasure? True worship is desiring to know Him. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to, he, he came to show us the Father and, and show us the Spirit and show us His sacrifice and show us that we can be in relationship with the God of the universe, we can have intimacy with the God of the universe. We can worship the God of the universe because we are in Christ. By faith, by grace, through faith, in His Son and His Son alone. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they ran and hid. They said... <laughs> Try to hide from God. That was them trying to 
cover up their sin by works. Don't we do that? Oh, I sinned, I'll do, I'll do 10 acts of something. I'll feed the poor, I'll give an extra $10 in the offering plate. I'll, I'll do something, God. I'll, I'll, I'll cover this sin with something that I can do. And God says, you, have you lost your mind? That's foolish, careless worship. You don't cover your sin. If you're in Christ, your sin is covered. Worship for His glory and for your good. Worship for His glory and for your strengthening. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not distracted by every other thing. Not loving other things more than you love Him. That's what worship is. So simple, isn't it? Just such a simple truth. But just like I tell those married couples who stand before me to commit their lives to one another and say, I do. Do you take this person to be your husband or wife? Till death do you part in good and bad and sickness and health and all that. I do. And they're always joyously ready to say, I do. Tell them in counseling, those are the easiest words in the world to say. They're the hardest words in the world to live. Do you love God? Oh, I do love God. Of course I love God. What fool wouldn't love God? Those are easy words to say. But your worship, your worship indicates whether they are careless Careless words or true words? Let's pray together. Father, you are indeed worthy of our worship. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will convict us where we have entered into careless worship. Lord, if we just say it's just too tiresome, just too tired to worship you today, Lord, I'm just too tired to give you my best. I'm just too tired to recognize that you have given me everything I have. It's just too tiresome. Lord, break our hearts that we may worship you in spirit and truth. Break our hearts that you might be our vision in every area of our life. Break our hearts, Lord, that we might see your holiness. And Lord, that we might recognize that not for a moment have you forsaken us. We are in you. Lord, our joy is to be found in you and as we find our joy in you we glorify you as we find our joy in you we worship you but when we find our when we find our joy elsewhere we get careless there's a real danger in that father i i pray for those here this morning that don't know you 
their worship is non-existent, really, because they can't focus on you because they're not in Christ. They don't know you, and, and your Holy Spirit's working their life. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would bring them to faith in Christ this morning. They would see their sin and repent of it and turn to you in faith because of your work in their heart, O oh Lord. Father, they would learn what it means to be in Christ. Father, be our vision. Be our vision at school and at work, in our community, in our homes. Be our vision in every area of our life. We pray in Jesus' name.